is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Happy Monday. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. Happy day. Welcome to another week of wrestling. Another week of Not Sam Wrestling. Happy to see you. I'm pretending I can see you. Hope that you're happy to see me or probably hear me. But regardless, let's enjoy ourselves, okay? Let's go. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. A lot of podcasters say this, and I never do. I just assume you know. But I do hope that wherever you get podcasts, you leave a rating and a review on iTunes or Spotify. You leave the rating, you leave the review, you subscribe, you follow. Any of the stuff that any podcast you listen to, if it says that it helps their podcast, assume that if you do it for mine, it'll help my podcast too. And I'd like for you to do it, okay? So do all anything that you do for anybody else's podcast that's positive, do for mine too. It would be a big help. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. Uh, another week, you know, uh, we got a... Uh, Pat Buck on the show today, good friend of the show, good friend of mine, Pat Buck, will be here on Not Sam Wrestling. Uh, but before we get to Pat, there are some things that, uh, that that require a bit of a discussion, I would say. Um, I want to say that, uh, you know, I talked last week about Michael Cole and the treatment that Michael Cole was getting on SmackDown and the fact that None of those big meaty wrestlers would just leave Michael Cole alone. That all Michael Cole wants to do is do his job out there. And for some reason, every time a match ends, somebody's got to jump all over Michael Cole. And it's enough of it. No more. It can't happen anymore. I said that the, the coal mine should come back. And I believe it now more than ever. On SmackDown, Sheamus... He wasn't even there for his match anymore. His match had ended. He had left. He came back out. And Michael Cole started talking about Jeff Hardy again, and Sheamus came out and got real, real up in his grill and real, real close to him. And, I mean, I was getting real Heidenreich vibes from him. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know. And we could bring this stuff up, you know. I mean, Mr. McMahon was on SmackDown randomly mentioning Katie Vick. So... I feel like if that's coming up and Triple H's 25-year uh, uh, anniversary spot, then we can bring up the fact that I got strong Heidenreich vibes. And I don't mean Legion of Doom Heidenreich. I think you know exactly what Heidenreich. I mean, in kids out there, if you don't know what I'm talking about, why don't you Google Michael Cole Heidenreich and you see what comes up. Because that's the that's the vibe that I got from Seamus. Um... Also, on SmackDown, you know, we had the 25th anniversary of Triple H in the WWE. 25 years since we were graced with the bow from the Greenwich Blue Blood, Hunter Hearst Helmsley. And I had mentioned something on Twitter, a story with Triple H. And it was not the first time I had met him, but I think it was the first time my wife Jess had met him. And the longer version of that story, because people, you know, had questions on after Twitter. I just thought of it as we were talking. I got a lot of Triple H stories. I've known Triple H for a long time. See, Triple H, uh, he he would do the radio show that I worked on, Opie and Anthony. Even when I was an intern, he was doing it. So, I mean, I, I've known 
I've known Triple H, Mick Foley, and Chris Jericho since I was an intern on that radio show. MVP too, actually. I don't think I was an intern when I met MVP, but I wasn't far from an intern. MVP and I go back too, very far. But it is weird, you know, when you're kind of there in a professional capacity, hanging out with these people that know you from your radio, you know, stunt boy days. It's not the best look in the world, but hey, it's the reality we live in, okay? What am I going to complain about it? So, Opie and Anthony had done a uh, a pilot for Comedy Central that never got picked up. But it was like a scavenger hunt where it was a, a bunch of comedians. Opie and Anthony were the hosts. And they would send out comedians uh, to get things done for points. And the comedians would bring with them, like, you know, little weasels that would just, you know, do whatever they needed done. And I was one of the weasels. And apparently on the show, one of the hints was, or one of the points mechanisms was, uh, get a stranger to kiss this one of your teammates. And so they got a stranger to kiss me, and it was a guy. And then they claimed after the kiss happened that it was a homeless guy. Now, look, this was many years ago, and I didn't catch anything from it. So, you know, no harm, no foul as far as I can see. Plus, I never got full confirmation that he was a homeless guy. But the reason that I bring it up is because the next day, Triple H was in studio. And it might have been the first time I met Triple H. I don't know for sure, but it was definitely very early on. And I remember I was very excited to meet Triple H. And I remember uh, I walked with him at the time. We did the first half of the show in the studio because we were on both K-Rock and XM Satellite. We did the first half of the show in the K-Rock studio. We did the second half of the show in the XM studio that was a block away. And every time, every single morning, we'd do the first half of the show, walk a block, do the second half of the show. It was a really weird setup. But Triple H was actually staying over and doing the XM portion of the show as well. And I remember Triple H and I made the walk over together that day. And I don't know how comfortable he felt about it because um, Opie and Anthony knew my wrestling fandom. And knew how much I love Triple H. And they said, uh, hey, Triple H, wait till you hear what our guy Sam did yesterday. And they made me tell him the whole story. And then we really got into it at XM. And it, I mean, look, it was hilarious, but not for me at the time. It was very embarrassing for me at the time. But I think Triple H has a steel trap memory. Because then I, I saw him, it must have been months later. And I was at a, a Hard Rock... Uh, press conference. They used to do press conferences before like WrestleMania at the Hard Rock Cafe. So it was before WrestleMania. He was the WWE champion at the time. And I was sitting right up front with the media, you know, my little press hat, my little notebook, my little pencil, ready to cover this thing. It was WrestleMania 27, probably. With the Miz. Yeah, it had to be WrestleMania 27 with the Miz versus, no, because Triple H was champion at the time. So it might have been WrestleMania 26, maybe. Um, maybe, but regardless, doesn't matter. Um, Triple H is up there. He gives his speech and everything. He sits down at the dais and we lock eyes and he kind of pointed and I nodded to say hello and he blew me a kiss and I was like, oh, he remembers. That was months ago. I can't believe he remembers. Then years later, years later, this is now at SummerSlam in, uh, Los Angeles. I had done a uh, an audition 
to be a WWE commentator. The audition fell on deaf ears. I did not get the job at the time. However, I was at this like uh, WWE corporate charity party thing. And I, and I was with my wife and I was like, oh, Jess, I got to push through the crowd over there just to mention to Triple H that I auditioned just in case, you know, the tape ends up on his desk or anything like that. And so she was like, yeah, if you want to. So that's what I did. I pushed through and I talked to the man in the game and uh, I told him what I'd done. He's like, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can get a copy of the tape. And then I said, hey, man, have you ever met my wife? I'd love to introduce you. He's like, no, no, I haven't met her. And he was like, I'd love to. He was, I mean, Triple H is like the nicest guy ever. And so I'm like, oh, okay, she's right over here. And she had stayed back so I could kind of push through. And as we're walking over, Triple H just leans in and whispers in my ear, hey, man, does she know about the whole you kissing homeless guys? <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Of all the things for you to remember about me. But, of course, my answer was, I mean, I was laughing. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, she does. She knows about everything. And she did. But that's what that story was that I kind of briefly, briefly mentioned on Twitter. Um, speaking of the Triple H and uh, and Shawn Michaels and the Triple H uh, 25th anniversary uh, thing that happened on SmackDown, Shawn Michaels was there. And uh, I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, uh, there's this terrific, I guess it's a docuseries technically, because it's a 10-part documentary on the 97-98 Chicago Bulls season. It's called The Last Dance. Whether you're a basketball fan or not, you'll love this. It's just a great story. And, uh, you know, Michael Jordan's all over it. And it's brought up the question, who is the Michael Jordan of wrestling? And I thought about it a lot. And at first, you're just like, okay, Michael Jordan, greatest of all time. I guess Hulk Hogan. You know, Michael Jordan... It's like the Babe Ruth of basketball, Babe Ruth, Michael Jordan, Hulk Hogan, you know, I, I think, right? But I really started to think about this. And this was after watching the documentary. And what's important to me in the documentary is this is not a guy who Michael Jordan was got to where he got due to just simply physical gifts, right? That's part of it. Of course, you know, some of it's God-given. But the reason that he was not just very good, the reason he was the greatest of all time was because he uh, worked and he busted his ass. And the one thing that comes through in the doc is that he was always obsessed with being the best. From the time he got there, his only goal was to be the best to ever do it. And there's only a few people. Everybody wants to be the best that ever do it. But there's only a few people that will actually put the work in and really make it their goal to be the best to ever do something that they're doing. And I think that is a key component to when factoring in the Michael Jordan of other professions. It's got to be somebody who came in with a singular goal of I'm going to be the best of all time. Somebody who is naturally gifted but not somebody who at first on their debut, I mean, Michael Jordan was drafted third, right? So it would have to be somebody, if we're talking about WWE, somebody who wasn't necessarily pegged as, oh yeah, he's going to be the greatest of all time. You know what I mean? He's, oh yeah, he's champion right away. It's somebody that has to work for it, right? It's not just enough that they did work for it. It's that they had to work for it. And it's somebody who's obsessed with winning and doing well 
every single time they go out there. Jordan played every single game like it was a championship game. And that's when I got to thinking, okay, who is that really? And it's somebody who can do it over time. Jordan's got six rings. You know what I'm saying? So for me, for me, Steve Austin could be a candidate in the sense that he wasn't pegged to be the best of all time. He worked his balls off and became that way. However, I think because Steve Austin only lasted the amount of time that he lasted as the best, and it took him so long to get there, that he doesn't factor in exactly with the Michael Jordan of wrestling. The Rock, to me, is a little more LeBron James. He also has the same thing with, with Austin in the sense that his run wasn't quite long enough on top to be considered a Michael Jordan. But also, not that The Rock didn't work. You know, we all know the six bucks story. But The Rock was pegged to be a star from the beginning. Whether it worked or not, Rocky Maivia was supposed to be a star. And a lot of it was God-given. You could say John Cena. You could. I don't think John Cena quite... I think the difference with John Cena is that while he is in the conversation of the best of all time, I just don't see him as... Jordan. Jordan had a style about him. There was a style about Jordan that even a non-basketball fan would look at and go, oh my God, what's that? That to me is what's missing with John Cena. To me, the only real answer and the only choice, you could say Ric Flair and that's a debate you could have, but I don't know that Ric Flair I don't know if it's the fact that he didn't win enough because really in wrestling, wins and losses don't matter so much. I mean, Ric Flair just had great match after great match. But, you know, first of all, you couldn't call him the Michael Jordan of the WWE for sure because so much of what he did was outside of the WWE. So maybe if you open this wrestling wide, you could have a bigger conversation. But if we're just talking about WWE, it's certainly not Ric Flair because he didn't do that work in WWE. So with that, with all of that taken into account for, and I would love for you guys to tweet. I'd love for you guys to write in comments. Uh, you can email notsamwrestling at gmail.com. However you want to communicate with me, communicate with me. But tell me what you think of this. Because in my mind, the only answer for who is the Michael Jordan of wrestling, you can even leave it in the comments on YouTube, is Shawn Michaels. To me, Shawn Michaels is the Michael Jordan of wrestling. He checks all the boxes. You're talking about a guy whose greatness could last over the course of years. You're talking about a guy who was always good, but never pegged to be the best of all time. You're talking about a guy obsessed with becoming the best of all time. You're talking about a guy who every night would go out there and try to steal the show and try to have the match of the night and try to deliver the same quality of match as if it were WrestleMania. You're talking about a guy who did it with that style, that certain that Michael Jordan did it with. And a guy who, when you look back at his career, you could say, yeah, yeah, that might be the best guy to ever do it. Yeah. I know those conversations were happening while he was still playing. But when you look back at the entire career, it becomes much more difficult. And I, I'll never forget 
an interview that I did with with Shawn Michaels that just made me rethink everything when he was talking about, I mean, he did end up returning for a match, but we don't really talk about that match. He was talking about why he didn't return and how he looked at his career and how it was all one story and that, that he thought on that level. And that's the level of thinking that you need to think on if you're the Michael Jordan of professional wrestling. To me, there's no question. Shawn Michaels is the Michael Jordan of professional wrestling. I'd love to hear your opinions. Tell me I'm wrong, but I doubt you can you can prove me wrong. I doubt you could say Shawn Michaels is not. That's what I think. Um, somebody that's worked his ass off uh, is is friend of the show, Pat Buck. Pat Buck, he uh, is one of the founders, or is the founder, I guess, of WrestlePro, big indie promotion out here on the East Coast. Pat Buck is a journeyman in this world of wrestling. Um, had a dream to make it to the WWE as a superstar. That dream was not fulfilled for various different reasons. But as a huge shock to me, he ended up a producer for WWE, which I don't know if he ever saw coming, but I certainly did not see coming. I thought he may end up, you know, he owns a school called Creative Pro alongside the Prince of Queens, Brian Myers, formerly known as Kurt Hawkins. Um, and I thought that that might translate into him coaching at the Performance Center. I could have seen that for him. You know, he's got a lot of friends in WWE. I'm like, yeah, I could see him. People And people really like him. He's a good trainer. I was like, yeah, I could see him. Uh, I could see him as a as a as a as a coach at the Performance Center, and I, I I'll remember. I never. I'll always remember when I heard that he got the gig. I can't remember who told me. It might have even been my wife talking to his wife. But I was like, oh, is he moving to Orlando? And she goes, no, he's going on the road. I was like, what? And then I found out he was going to be a producer. And he spent uh, he spent a while at WWE as a producer, but he was one of the casualties of the. Uh, Recent releases, he was one of, I think, nine producers who were released. But um, Pat has a fascinating story, and he's got a new podcast called The Pat Buck Show. And when I heard that he's got a new podcast, I said, Pat, why don't you come on, not Sam Wrestling. We'll yap about wrestling. We'll promote your podcast. It'll be all good. He said, Sam, that's a great idea. So this is it. This week on Not Sam Wrestling, enjoy the one and only Pat Buck. Before we go a step further, I want to tell you guys a way that you can support this podcast and get more content and less of these annoying interruptions. That's at patreon.com slash notsamwrestling. Become a Not Sam Shill for less than a dollar a week, and you will get this podcast every single week early and ad-free. You'll get an additional bonus podcast every single week if you're a Not Sam Shill. You'll get access to our Discord room. Where Not Sam Wrestling listeners are there 24 hours a day, seven days a week talking about wrestling and life and everything in between. You go up the tiers, you'll have early access to video that gets posted at youtube.com slash Not Sam Wrestling. You're going to be able to watch the podcast get taped live from the Not Sam studio and a whole lot more. It's the best way to support the podcast and it's the best way to flood yourself with all of the Not Sam content available on this planet. Go to patreon.com slash notsamwrestling and become a Not Sam shill today. The Not Sam Wrestling interview. Back on Not Sam Wrestling, longtime friend of the show, friend of mine, ladies and gentlemen, Pat Buck is here. Welcome, Pat. What's the haps? Same old, same old, a lot going on. <laughs> yes. Thanks for uh, having me. Of course. 
Yeah, I love it. Eventful, eventful week. I love that. That's the uh, that, but that's the that's the go-to, right? You're just so used to being like, ah, same old, same old. Everything's fine. You're like, wait, wait, wait. No, my whole life is turned upside down. But- oh my god, yeah. It, <laughs> but it's also weird because we're doing absolutely nothing. Right. And, but everything, but everything's happening. Right. So it's it's a mixture of, of yeah. nonsense. Yeah, like the we'll biggest it's nothing eventful will happen. But then the day-to-day is just the same of just like, oh, I don't know, I woke up, I was at home all day and trying to figure stuff out, and then, you know. Keep Left my going. apartment maybe four times in a month. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really, it's been, it's been something, though. It's not all, it's not all, uh, it's not all good, it's not all bad, it's just, hey, just what it is. Right, which is kind of, I mean, I feel like as far as life lessons that you learn in the wrestling industry, like coping with something like this, I would imagine the wrestling industry has to help you if you're taking the right things away, meaning like just the idea of like, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know how long anything's going to last. I don't know what anything is, but I'm going to wake up. I'm going to make the most out of today and we're going to keep it moving. I think for some people, I think for those that have, you know, an independent wrestling background, when, you know, you you get success or when you've been doing it long enough, you are, you're able to kind of ride the wave. Things go up, things go down something great happens or you hear something great is about to happen. It doesn't happen. I'm a little more worried for those that don't have that background. I think it's kind of going to be a real, uh, I don't say a crash course, but I think that those who have kind of weathered this, weathered the storm before are going to feel, you know, be a little bit more at peace with this. And those who are completely had their worlds kind of, you know, turned upside down. Yeah. I guess that is the thing. Like when you already have to deal with, oh my God, this dream is never going to happen for me and get past that. And then it kind of does anyway in a different form. When it kind of stops again, you're like, it's okay. This is kind of how life works. You go up, you go down, you go back up. Like you just figure out, okay, well, what's what's the next move to make and what's the next pivot here? Right. And I, and for those that don't know how to figure it out, that's part of uh, part of what I want to kind of put out there eventually. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit. But I, I really think that that uncertainty that probably happened for a lot of those talents that you know th- this happened to, there is so much good that could come from or opportunity or just a different way of living that it's not as bad as they may think, especially for the time period. Had it been you know five, ten years ago, totally different worlds. But even then, it was manageable. But there's something to you know, the credibility that all of them have gained that they can actually make a new success story out of, you know, what went on, what happened. It's probably also a little bit of a scarier time for everybody, just in the sense that there's no wrestling shows happening immediately for anybody. So that idea of hitting the ground running, you have to be a little bit more creative in order to hit the ground running now than you would have been like, you know, had there you could at least, even if you've, you know, got 90 days to sit out or whatever it is, you could have, sat and been like, okay, I'll just get my ducks in order so that in 90 days, but when we're in an environment where we don't know what the world is going to look like in 90 days, Mm -hmm. I would imagine that becomes a little bit like, okay, that's a little bit more uneasy, right? I think so. Because I think with, with, with 90 days or, or whatever the the terms may be, they, you know, I, I think it's time to kind of, the, the thing that's missing the most, or the only thing missing is you can't, you know, fill your schedule past that. You know, you could start to do that now if things were were happening. But you know, being a promoter myself and 
seeing how things are, we, we can't. We can't do a thing about it. The only kind of, I, I guess, conversations you can really have is those promotions that are going to be strictly content-based or, you know, are able to pull off some sort of, which they're, you know, from my knowledge, there's only two of them really doing it. So that's, uh, that, that's the, the uneasy part. But I think that 90 days is such a long time that I really hope that they should hit the ground running just in a different capacity, meaning trying to film content. I don't care if it's a cell phone video. I don't care if you, you know, figure out a way to you know, re remind people throughout this time period that you're still there mm -hmm. and maybe even just open up, you know, just because there may not be such and such promotion running, it might be worth it to have an open conversation with the person who eventually is going to run that show and start that friendship and start that bond, which I believe some of the guys will. And I think some of them are kind of going to fade into the sunset and some are going to use people to represent them, which I understand I do and don't, but it's going to be a, once we get out of this and I, I, I hope that we get back to live events. I don't, I don't know what you think. I don't know what the, you know, what it's going to be, but I just hope that we get a, it's, it's sooner rather than later. So, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot and I feel like even as a fan, I feel like I would be as a fan more comfortable going to an independent show in a properly suited venue, right? Like it's really interesting. I feel like those mid-level independent shows that, you know, anywhere from 500 to 1500 is probably mm -hmm. where I see it opening up first and where I would be comfortable going to first. Cause that's the area where you don't feel like everybody is on top of each other. You feel like, okay, I can, I can distance myself if I want to, you know, if it's done in like a, a VFW or a gym or even in the Rawway Rec Center or whatever, like there's spots that I could go walk over here and kind of be distant from people if I want to, you know, I think that stuff in big arenas where you're packing a ton of people in. And I think that stuff where you're trying to fit 500 people into a room that really seats about 350. Those right. are those are the spots where I'm going to be like, yeah, I don't really think I want anything to do with that for a while. And if if it opens up, I mean, what I think will eventually happen again, I'm, I'm no expert. I have no idea what will happen. But running like the, the use of the Rowley Rec Center that could realistically fit 1500 people, but like sardines in there, you know, it'd be really tight. Yeah. I, in my. I had I I see it coming back where I'm going to be allowed to run independent wrestling events with a building that big, but maybe I can only put a hundred people in there. 150. Yeah. That's kind of where I think it's going to go first. Now I hope it's sooner than later. I hope I'm crossing my fingers for like a September, mm -hmm. and then it's going to be up to me to figure out how to run, you know, a financially successful show with a, a capacity of you know, do you raise ticket prices? Do you do this, that, the other? But as far as what you're saying, I completely agree. I think that I think independent wrestling is going to make its comeback before stadium shows can. I mean, yeah. you, you, arena shows. It's not that I think that's almost inevitable. So there's going to be a real interesting time period once we all get past this where let's see what the independents can do as states reopen and hopefully capacity can be allowed. Yeah. And you have to look at that, too. Like, like, I mean, just looking at the business of it, like looking at profit margins, like what are the type of wrestling shows. I kind of look at it the same way I look at comedy shows. Like realistically, mm -hmm. is a comedy club where you're, it's a small room, like, you know, the comedy cellar. It's like this iconic spot, 
where where everybody knows the name and you go to New York and it's become a tourist destination. But realistically, it's a small room that packs in a ton of right. people. And that's the charm of it. But I'm not going into a small room that packs in a ton of people anytime soon. I will go into a sure. room. I'll go into a theater where we're sitting every three seats and mm-hmm. I can leave if I want to. And I can, you know, if I start to get kind of freaked out or whatever, I can go out into like the mezzanine area or whatever it's called. Like, uh, I could see, I could see that running. And I think it's the same with wrestling. And I also think it's, it's what shows can afford to cut off two thirds of the crowd and still turn a profit. And, and how does that look? And also you're right. Like, do you raise ticket prices? Maybe. And like really advertise this is limited, limited, limited seating, be there, at the first show back, but at the same time, you're like, okay, well, what big names are going to be there? Okay, well, guess what? Nobody's traveling. So, (laughs) you know, that's another Mm kind of hiccup in the whole thing. No, I think so. I think with, if I, my whole business model has changed over the years from when I first started promoting to literally we'd have anybody and everybody on a show and try to sell it out, try to get to that 1500 capacity. And now I'm looking at it. I feel like I'm going to be running you know, just with my crew, which I'm, you know, super proud of maybe a couple independent guys and like one recognizable person. Yeah. I don't see, and I'm just really hoping that going forward, you know, that venues are kind of open up to more realistic expectation on what they charge, you know, when we're going to be faced with this, you know, I really hope that there's a, I hope there's a way to pull it off because it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be an uphill struggle for everybody, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's really an interesting thing because I do feel like I had already felt like like when AEW started signing up people and when WWE was keeping, you know, tons of people signed and they still are like when they're when when they're just became that and Ring of Honor started going with more exclusive contracts and they're that much talent just started to be signed exclusively. I was like, well, this this feels like an opportunity for an independent renaissance where like. Hmm. there are all these guys that are not on TV. And like, I, I felt like, you know, for a long time, it became difficult to stand out on the independence because really there was this handful of people that were considered independents, but were making tons and tons of money and didn't have to be sure. contracted. And those were the people that you really wanted to see at independent shows that were making money. And I feel like now there's opportunity to take people that you're like, oh, I guess I have heard of that person or yeah, I know the name or I've heard they can do good matches and those people can now stand out on shows and oh. be and be the people that like, you know, I'll watch this show. They now have the opportunity to stand out. I leave talking about them and, you know, within a few months, this is the person that I'm going to independent shows to see. It's the best and worst thing that ever happened, I think, to independent wrestling. You know, I, when I started promoting in 2012, like I just said, I, I, would, I was booking it. I'd book everything. Not everything, but i try to hit every single demographic that I can. I'd anchor the show in with, like, a Bret Hart or a Ric Flair or whomever to, you know, make the poster recognizable. And I would use, you know, like I'm looking at my poster right now. Mm-hmm. My first show, Matt Hardy and... We have Cabana, we have Godfather, Abdul the Butcher, like a lot of heavy price price tag things you got to figure out and bring them all in. As time went on, that kind of went away, and I felt like the crowds got a little not tired of it, but but also those recognizable big monster names. Some of them inflated their prices, so I found a new business model with almost using the newly released talents. They were they were kind of be like my first stop for Russell Pro. You know, I'd 
like like Emma and Wade Barrett and one of Cody's first, but like I, I started building kind of off that. But then, like you said, companies started really locking in exclusive people. You know, people. You know, I used to use people from TNA and then became Impact and Impact, and then uh, you know I was using Ring of Honor guys, and then there came this thing. I don't know what year it was, maybe 2017, maybe 2018, where you couldn't book anybody. So it was like the absolute best time to be a talent because there, all these guys were locked into exclusive deals, which God bless them. That's awesome. Yeah. As a promoter, brutal. And especially this year, even going into, I'll even say my last show that I ran in February, you know, we me, myself and, and, you know, my booker KM, we were, we booked the boogie woogie man and we were, <laughs> I, we were really trying to, what can we legit put out there? That's kind of different because you, you couldn't, there's no one to book. So now that everything's going to change, despite COVID and everything going on, you know, the scene itself is going to change too. Cause now we have what, 25, 30, you know, more, if you count the producers and such that could be working on shows and brought in. So I'm real interested to see what, what's going to go on there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for those that don't know Pat Buck's story, and you should by now, he's been on the podcast enough times and, and, and you know, he's been even outside of the podcast, his story is well known. But uh, Pat was uh, many, many moons ago, he was a developmental talent for WWE. Not necessarily, you weren't signed to a developmental deal, but you that's where you were working because you just knew that that's where the eyes would see you, right? Yeah, Cliff, Note, Cliff Notes, in right. the guy during during the worst time period ever which like 2001 ish um worked all over for a while and i wanted to be full-time at wrestling and the only place to me to make a living to be with a company was wwe through ovw so went to ovw yeah and on then, my own dime. right right yeah that's important and then uh but people liked you and, and obviously you're a good wrestler and after many sort of this is going to happen and then it didn't happen and haircuts and maybe you'll be a wrestler well maybe you'll be a referee and maybe you'll change your name and maybe you'll it became yeah. clear that it just wasn't going to happen. And you, what had... I thought would be a lot of people that got to my position, it was basically you work through the system and press the right people and you get thrown into the WWE training class mm -hmm. where you're not getting, you're not getting paid, but you're probably next to be hired. And when I finally broke in, I broke in within the first year, you know, all the guys that were like, Hey, like, I think you're next and may, it might take another year. But then I'm four and a half years in and I'm going, eh, I don't. And then OVW, you know, the, the relationship switched to FCW and I followed it down there, mm -hmm. did the same thing. <laughs> and then after doing it for about a year down there, it was kind of like, eh, I gotta, I can't do this anymore. I can't be the, Hey, I'm here kind of guy. Let me prove myself. You know, it was, it was insanity. I had to, I had to go do something else. Which is great. Cause that's where like, you know, you really start to figure out, okay, how do I make money in the wrestling industry outside of WWE without having a WWE name? Like I've never been in WWE. I just don't have television right. exposure. I now need to figure out how to make a living doing this. And this was before kind of uh, the, the, the entrepreneurship of wrestling had really blown up. Right. Because now I yeah, think that awesome. I think that most independent guys know that you have to be an entrepreneur and, and, and mm. think from a business perspective and brand yourself and do the whole thing. Um, but that's when you uh, you started wrestling independently, and then you started becoming involved as a, w with a promotion. You became a promoter. You started your own promotion. WrestlePro happens. 
you know, everything kind of turns out right. And you're like, holy shit, I've got a promotion. I've got a school now. I'm also making money. You know, I mean, that last year, you were also, you started doing shows again. You were like, I think I can also be a wrestler for lots of different promotions. And they promotions were like, yes, you can do that. Yeah, it only took 11 years to, <laughs> to finally find like an inkling of success. Yeah, but you know what? I was I was happy being promoter, trainer guy. Yeah. You know, I'm like, okay, I got two schools. I have, have you know, a promotion. I can, I can wrestle when I want to. You know, I like to say I was a poor man's Jerry Lawler mm-hmm. where I just kind of – where he stayed in Memphis. I just stayed kind of – and then, you know, wrestling started booming last year with, you know, the opening of AEW and – Ring of Honor expanding and WWE doing all the things they're doing with NXT. It's like, ah, man, I'm, you know, while I'm in my mid thirties, I want to get back out there. So wrestled full time and it led me to, you know, WWE in this year. Yeah. I mean, and I, and, and you ended up first, you were down at the performance center doing some guest uh, coaching and, and you had ended up there like, you know, once a month or something, they would fly you back. And, you know, after a couple of times, I was like getting excited. I was like, I think they're going to hire Pat as a coach at the performance center. And you were ready to do that. Right. I mean, you were you were. Yeah. I mean, uh, first time I kind of said it, but I I got invited to go down there. It 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 was kind of I don't know. I, I it kind of happened strangely where they were bringing in a lot of guys and not not for nothing. I was kind of looking at it going. If there's one thing I can do in wrestling, it's train people. You know, I've been doing it full time for, you know, since I started my, my, in 2012, but even before that, I was training guys. When I went down to FCW to try to get a job, I joined the beginner program that was coached by Norman Smiley and Steve Kern. And by the end of the program, I was teaching the program. Wow. So like I've, you know, so, uh, it, it was kind of a weird thing where I'm going, why am I not never invited? I wasn't bitter towards it, but I'm just like, ah, they just don't want me. And then I, I, one of my, Dear friends, uh, Serena Deeb mm-hmm. was just like, hey, do you want to be down here? I'm like, yeah, of course I do. But I don't know. I was never asked. I don't know how to go about it. Later that day, I had an email, which is kind of cool. Like, hey, come down here. So, you know, thanks to Matt Bloom and Triple H, I went down there a couple times. And then at the end of my first week, uh, I got asked if I'd consider to go overseas to coach at like months at a time. Now, I don't know where that was. I don't know if it's going to be, you know in England, Frantics, UK, or whether it's going to be, you know, the Saudi stuff was starting to happen. There was, there was a lot of, you know, rumors about an NXT India. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll go for a month. I don't care. I can still run my business. It's cool. And, and they would have been cool with that. They would be like, look, we just, you know, we're going to open schools all over the world. You can still do what you do. Like don't you, that exclusivity thing is not a, as much a thing anymore. We would just want you right. for a month to go down there and, and be our representative and train the guys. Yeah. And I, I was thrilled. I was absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I went back home and, you know, work in the independence again, running my own places and um, started to get some producer experience with impact, you know, when they were around New York or in Philly, you know, I, I started, you know, running the gorilla position and kind of just, just helping out back there. And strangely enough, it's kind of a, it's kind of a crazy story. I've actually never said it and I'll, I'll say it here, mm-hmm. but uh, WrestleMania what was it? The one New York was at 35, 35. Right? Yep. 35. Yeah. So around that time, um, I guess coached and it was about four days before WrestleMania. And I, my partner Hawkins was like, Hey, uh, they, they need two guys to go to MetLife stadium to wrestle in a match to test the cameras and the audio 
and there, there's like nobody available on Saturday. I'm guessing like NXT guys were tied up, tied up. Everybody's doing rehearsals or all the thing, whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. I go, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And uh, another person, KM, was supposed to do it as well. So I go there, and it took me a while to get through security and and get into the arena because I don't have any credentials and high security. Basically, I get through, and I'm standing by the ring, you know, waiting on KM, who was stuck with security too. And the camera guys are getting a little restless, and they're kind of like, you know, and they're they're awesome guys, but they're they're like, hey, where's your where's your partner? Because they got 150. It's WrestleMania. They got a hundred things to do. Right. And it's probably and it's it's like late at night on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's during the day. So oh, okay. The sun's up, but like, and I'm so, but no, but nobody's there except for us. Mm-hmm. I'm like, and I told them, I, I go, look, do you guys want me to go in there and there and wrestle myself? I'll have a full <laughs> match with myself, so you guys can. And they go, would you please? I go, absolutely. I get in there <laughs> and I wrestle the Invisible Man. <laughs> Literally, lock up. I'm taking bumps. I, I, I think I took like, I remember in my head, I'm like, oh my god, please tell me to stop because I'm like four, three or four minutes into this Invisible Match. <laughs> you didn't realize how I, stiff you were. <laughs> Right. Like yeah. that. And I'm like, I can't bump anymore. This is ridiculous. Yeah. And they're just like, no, thank you. Perfect. They just wanted to hear how the ring sounded and do all that. So I leave there. And then about, about a couple of weeks later, I get an email from uh, talent relations basically saying, um, you've been approved to go to raw or SmackDown as an extra. I didn't apply for it though. I'm like, hmm. I haven't been an extra in like eight years. You know what I mean? I, I, not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, I, that was, why is this happening? And I remember I reached out like, Hey, and I also felt a little strange because, Hey, I was just guest coaching. Is it okay for me to go as a extra? You right. Know, Should I a... be doing that? Or, or will people think that I've graduated past it? I like, you don't know what the, you, you don't know what it means. I, cause I just thought it was a mistake. Right. I'm like, why am I getting this? You know, nobody answered me. So I went, eh, I'm going to go. Good. And I go and the same thing kind of happens where I go there and I don't know what it was. I think it was Boston. But uh, Shane Helms comes out to me and goes, hey, uh, you know, uh, Triple H needs a match in the ring. They need to test the, the third hour of Raw was apparently going to look more gritty or different cameras. Right. I remember that. Uh, and he's like, hey, do you uh, do you know any of these extras that will do it? And I go, I don't know any of them, but let me do it. So I have a match in there. And then that kind of led me. To, was like, it a match with a, was it a match with a person? With this? actual person. Oh, OK, time. that's so, right. Yeah. Way easier. Way easier. <laughs> So we have a basic little match. I'm feeling good. And I know everybody up there. And um, it just led to different conversations with uh, different people, you know, about um, I think at that time, the, the the they knew that Raw and SmackDown, I don't know if the draft was coming up, but more, no, I don't think it was, no. But the SmackDown was about to go to Fox or they knew that was happening. So, you know, just like talent, the backstage was divided in half where they more people, they needed more producers Mm -hmm. and enough people, the current producer team spoke up for me or they're kind of like, you know, Pat, because he runs his own shows. He's a good trainer, this, that, the other. And it led to me being asked to be a producer there, which, you know, was something that I never thought, like when I, when it was first brought up to me, they're like, you know, would you be interested being a producer here? You know, when I think producer, I think, you know, a person that aged out of wrestling or like someone that you know, maybe can't really, whatever the reason may be, but then the company was really open-minded towards younger perspectives and trends and also, all, you know. I yeah. feel like mainly producers are people that have experience in WWE specifically, right? Right. Right. But but 
and what I was told too, in particular, was we we also we want someone who doesn't have that, who has not been here. Sure, you can learn the system, but who offers a different perspective. And then I was like, oh my god, like it's a position I never thought I would have, but I kind of feel well qualified for because it's booking, it's it's training, it's physicality, it's everything that I've been doing, and it led for you know the job. Did you realize? So I'm really grateful for. It. Did you realize that you would turn into like? And I was thinking about this too because I didn't think about it until later. But like I was going back and watching like uh, old episodes of like Superstars and stuff like that, and and you remember like you'd see like uh, Rene Goulet and you'd see like Tony Gurria. <laughs> and like Gurria. as a kid, your only experience with those guys is that's the guy in the suit that comes out and like does something like you Bre never breaks you, up the fight. Right. Yeah. You never knew his wrestling background. You kind of sometimes like gorilla monsoon or somebody would put him over. So you'd realize he was a wrestler, but you, that's all you knew him of. And I was like, <laughs> I wonder if for a generation of kids, they're going to be like, that's Pat Buck. <laughs> He's the guy in the suit that comes out and gets like, and Brock Lesnar kicks his ass or something like that. Cause for a while, I mean, yeah. for most of the time you were there, you ended up on TV like constantly. Yeah, there was, you know, for the, for this year, like I, I was, I was like kind of tracking it down. Like, that's kind of cool. Cause it would be, you know what it was? I think it was a healthy go. If you send someone out there, like another producer, like a Shane, like a Shane Helms or a Devon or a Michael Hayes, you, you disconnect because I know that guy, you know what I mean? Right. Like that, you're the recognizable, but you send me and I haven't been in WWE. So they're just like, oh, that's that's an official. That's a, that's a, that's a person. And I, and it would just be like, if, it would if, just be um, us nerds going like, that's Pat Buck and Adam Pierce. That's who that is. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we became the, the kind of the, I mean, Pierce, God, he, he, he's always on. Yeah. And I think also if they, if they need someone to, uh, you know, get their, get, take a bump or two. Mm -hmm. Sure. I'm not, I'm here. Mm -hmm. So, and also I, I, I just, it made me excited. It gave me something really fun to do. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm the suit guy. Mm -hmm. So I got to, I can, I, I'm have, I don't know what to do now because I have like 30, 45 suits that, <laughs> that I, uh, that I purchased, but I'm like, okay, I'm like, okay, this is going to be my thing. I'll, that's my thing. And a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. How much did it change your perspective? Like when you start to see things from the inside and all of a sudden explanations for decisions, I feel like you must've been in one of those rare positions where everybody hears about decisions mm -hmm. made, especially if, you know, you being before you were where you were at, you'd hear from all these wrestlers that, well, this happened to me or, or your own personal thing. This happened to me. When you are mm -hmm. in that producer position and you're talking to the higher ups and you're talking to everybody there and you're actually speaking with the decision makers about the decisions being made, all of a sudden you're getting explanations, I would imagine, of decisions that sure. you would have other than you, you would have just heard the results of. You never would have gotten that kind of uh, uh, explanation for. Did it change your perspective on things to hear the thought process behind decisions getting made? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I think what, and the reason why almost no is because running so many shows myself, mm -hmm. it's just you You basically, I always said that a, a good promoter, you're basically dealing with problems as they pop up mm. and you have to kind of, you know, be flexible and realize, okay, this is a situation that needs to be addressed and how can we find the, the best method to, to do so? It wasn't always about, you know, 
you know, it's, it's also weird too, because, and this is what I try to do with my own promotion, my own training school, where you make a decision and you're going to carry it out. And then some, someone brings up a different perspective and it's actually better. So you, you change it because you want the best thing, the best decision to be there for your product. And then sometimes there's outside, you know, how, how deep things go with networks or, you know, little, little things we could, we could plan an entire thing around some sort of physicality. But if we're working in the state of Kentucky that has specific rules legally with a commission that we're not allowed to do that, then, and, and maybe it slipped through the cracks, we have to kind of rearrange everything. So there's, there's all these things that go into such a, you know, high caliber television production with WWE that kind of, you have to learn how to adapt and kind of, we, we hope to get the right decision, but also, you know, being a producer, you're, 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 you are involved in the grand scope of things, Mm -hmm. but more so it's like a section of the television you see is designated to you. So while we, we do have that established connection with kind of giving our, and that, that was my favorite thing about the job and, and probably my favorite thing about, uh, about Vince was that he always wanted feedback and cared about our feedback. So like that was really, you know, and, and we'd often have to write in different things like that and he, he's reading them. So I thought that that stuff was really, really cool. But a lot of times we're kind of, we, we, we can give a scope of what's going on and see how things change, but we are in charge of what, of what our particular match or segment is. So almost all of our focus and attention goes to that because we want that to be the best. So sometimes things w- would occur that, that, you know, we got three hours of content one night, three hours plus, it, I mean, three hours plus another additional half hour, hour of main events and, you know, two hours of SmackDown with 205 Live. And then there's also, you know, on, on most events, a post-show dark match, which will have a producer with it too. There's so much going on that sometimes you're just designated to, you know, you're, you, you want to, whatever you're in charge of that night, that's your number one focus. Right. So it's just, you know, it, it's almost overwhelming, but it, it, it's such a, it, it's always like TV days are just like, come on, man, let's go. Like you, you gotta have that passion and energy and, and really gotta, you know, t- take it all in, but also know when you have to focus on what you've been assigned to do because every, you know, you, we, we know, we know going in there, this is what you're going to have. And, you know, a couple days before you're thinking about how do I make this match or this segment the best it could possibly be. So we're kind of, you know, tunnel vision, but then we also give a grand, you know, uh, uh, feedback on what else is going on. Is it tough for you as a promoter at heart who comes from like, okay, I was just promoting shows. I was the man in charge. I had my hands on everything to be like, okay, Pat, you're totally in charge of your thing, but just mm-hmm. your thing. Channel all your energy into here and don't worry about the rest of the stuff. Is it difficult for you not to worry about the rest of the stuff when you were so used to worrying about the rest of the stuff? I think because this, you know, this position was so it was my first time being with, with WWE and being in such an, what I think is a really, to, to me, I've, and I've worked with everybody in this industry. Those producers are some of the smartest people in the world, mm-hmm. some, of the, some of the greatest minds. So when you're, I think that I really just liked contributing and work. I, I think the most re- rewarding part of it was, you know, working with the talent. So I just look forward to, okay, 
this is my match this week. This is the talent I'm working with. How, how do we, how do we, you know, bring the best out of them? You know, if, if, if I, if we all exhausted ourselves with kind of focusing and also not for nothing too, if a produ- whatever, whatever your segment is for your producer, your, that's your baby. Right. So, you know what I mean? Like if, who am I to ever, you know, occasionally us producers would offer suggestions to each other. Like, Hey, I just had this idea, take it or leave it. What do you think? And, but that's their, they're in charge of that. So why would I, you know, why would I want to cross? So, you know what I mean? Like occasionally, like Michael Hayes would always give you great advice. I mean, that, that's a really good idea. Mm-hmm. You weave that in, you know? So like, I, I, I just felt like we were in charge or the way I approached it was whatever I'm responsible for, that's my number one priority. Did you ever have that, uh, I can't remember, his name's escaping me at the moment. I'm kicking myself, but the promoter from Beyond the Mat who shows up and he's like, yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, we're just running out of our out of a garage now, but I mean, a couple years. Was it Ruben, never know. R- Rupert, uh, Rollins, 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 yeah, 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 Rollins, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When he's like looking around and he's going like, you know, maybe we could, we could, we could be this big. <laughs> like, did you-, you know, <laughs> it's funny now because the current I was I, I went to Creator Pro yesterday just to kind of check the school and walk around and you know I don't know just to see how everything is. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm doing that. I'm like I'm going to turn this place into the next developmental. <laughs> yeah. So. I it, of course, happen, but. of course it could. I mean, you know, it's so funny. Like after this happens to you, right? After you become a producer, full-time producer, WWE, straight up, you must have that feeling of like, you know what? We're in this life where weird things happen and literally anything could happen. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I, I felt that way accepting, you know, uh all the producers there, I think, are world lifers. Like, no matter what, you're going to see all of us and, and, until the day they decide to retire. Like, I knew that for myself, that I was convinced that, you know, after leaving this experience, whatever happens next, like, and, I, and I'm uncertain, I can't tell you. I could go back, you know, next week, or I could never go back. I have no clue. Mm-hmm. But just the fact I can kind of look back and go, wow, the last year, you know, I was one of the... 16, 15 people that was responsible for, you know, essentially I look at us, we were part of, uh, one of the things that was said to me, I thought was really, really interesting was, you know, where, where one of the few generations that gets to work with, or one of the only generations that get to work with someone my age working directly with Vince. And I, I like, Oh, wow, that's kind of cool. So I get to kind of take that experience and put it into whatever the next thing is. And, uh, you know, like it's, it's just kind of surreal in a way. Yeah. Even though it, you know, it's, it's bittersweet, I guess you can say. Yeah, no, I totally get it. And it really is amazing that like, yeah, that, that somebody that's your age has that perspective. Everybody's got an opinion on Vince McMahon and on WWE inside and outside the wrestling industry. Like everybody knows everybody's got an opinion. Everybody thinks that he does this, but I mean, there's so few people that actually understand what it is. I don't even understand what it is to actually work directly, you know, with him and actually hear how his mind works and everything. That to me would probably be the most fascinating part of the whole process that you went through. I think so. I mean, cause it's, that's, that's the guy. And I really didn't, when I, when, when I took this job, I didn't really know how directly that relationship would be. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't know that every single, I made it a point of practically every single time I'm at work, it's going to be him and I in a room doing something, you know, or, or me, uh, 
pitching an idea or there, there's just some sort of interaction and that they were all, you know, great experiences. You know, they were all tremendous learning experiences and it, it made me better in my position. And there's things where, you know, I learned to do and what to do and just kind of, you know, from that, that promoter perspective in me learned so much that now I, I'm able to take that and, you know, put that wherever. And there, there was a lot, there was just so many great minds when you're, when you're, you know, working with Heyman and Bruce and Hunter and just hearing and all the producers collectively, you, you know, just, I felt like I, I was in the who's who of wrestling minds, you know, and, and really learning different people's leadership styles and how they deal with talents and how they come up with ideas. You know, some guys were, you know, very good on coming up with creative finishes. Some are really, really good at just knowing how to say the right thing to a talent to motivate them. It's not just about, you know, the, the storylines and, and it's, it's about, it's, a, we're, we're coaches, you know, we're not just producing matches. We're really responsible for bringing the best out of every single talent that there is, you know, that's, that's, part. and being, you know, it, it's, it's not an easy job either. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we have to, the, the company comes first and we have to be the bearer of bad news, but it was, I love the job. I really do. And it was just such a tremendous, at first it was a little overwhelming seeing how everything was, but within after a couple of weeks, like to, you know, be in charge of matches that were very important, high caliber. Like I'm proud of that. Yeah. How long does it take you to get rid of any imposter syndrome that's there? How long does it take you to go like, nope, I'm fully capable of producing this match or nope, I know exactly how to pitch to somebody like Vince McMahon and, and I can, I can pitch this idea, whether he likes it or not. I know how, I know I can pitch this idea and be comfortable. I with think that. one of my favorite things, and I didn't expect this was when I first got, uh, the, the, the job, I worried that going up there, well, if I work with a particular talent, say like a Randy Orton mm -hmm. or someone, and I'm, you know, it's one thing if you have a Fit Finley or, you know, someone producing your match, but, you know, I'm younger. I don't come from the WWE world. How are certain talents going to react to me being there producing their match? And I, I couldn't have been further wrong like they everybody was incredible and i was kind of shocked that people that you wouldn't expect to know the independent wrestling scene mm -hmm. they all knew who i was and that to me and i'm not saying that from ego i'm saying it because i was surprised right i was really surprised how no we we know of you we're aware of you and it that imposter syndrome it goes away quickly because people can see through you know like one thing i I want to hear the talent's ideas first and then tweak them and then offer, you know, there, there are some people that I know in wrestling that they have their set mindset. This is how it's going to be. That doesn't work. You know what I mean? So, um, that it was such an incredible, you know, and I bring up Randy because like Randy was so incredibly good to me and I, you know, had a couple of his matches and it was great. And you offer, you know, unique takes or you offer it's just a thing. It, it, I really felt like I belonged and you could see with, you know, how the outside WWE wrestling world matters. So that's the number one thing I take from that is that what you do in the wrestling business outside of there, mm -hmm. you know, cause they, it, there used to be a thing that what you did before WWE didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you like it matters now. It was different back then, or maybe it was even different 10 years ago, 
But I think the respect of your peers happens with what you do outside of there. Because when you come in, they'll be like, oh, I know that that person vouches for him or I know that person. And, and other people, I don't I think, you know, it, it won't work out for them. But it's, yeah, uh, it was a unique, unique time. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, does your promoter part of your brain ever turn off? Like, do you ever go like, OK, you know. WrestlePro's in good hands. I don't need to think about that. Or even like as this is all happening, like as quarantine is starting, even though you're not, you know, in your mind, you're like, well, I'm a producer with WWE now. I don't really need to think about how to run shows, right. you know, outside of this. Are you still somewhere in your brain going like, okay, well, how would I have run shows? Like, how, how do I think this is all going to work out? It, You know, at first, when I first got up there, um, it turned off for a little bit and I really delegated responsibility to to my crew. Mm -hmm. And then towards the end, I started taking habits that I developed up there and, and kind of, and they were more communication skills. They were more figuring out a way to uh, make finishes better, figure out a way to kind of just, I, I took a lot of, I, I got more involved towards the later months. And, and now it's like, now it's really, really kicked on. I mean, to, to be perfectly honest too, some things are in the back of my brain. I love being a producer, but being in my mid thirties, anyone who's anyone that can still go in wrestling still wants to perform. They still want to work, you know, that they want to be in the ring or do something. And like, I always had that itch. However, my job as producer. That's what I do and happy to do it. And that's what you're, I'm here for. So like now that that's not happening, you know, my, I'm looking at it from every perspective, from the future of promoting shows to producing my shows, to being a wrestler, on my shows, but everywhere else and potentially working with other companies to see where I land. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it, you're right about it being an amazing time and you have hit the ground running. You're launching your podcast, the Pat Buck show episode one's out. So you can find it Pat Buck show. If you just search Apple or wherever you get podcasts, you'll find it. Um, but you immediately got back into podcast world. And I liked uh, what I heard on the first episode where you're kind of, and I think this is what people should do when they're podcasting, sticking to your expertise in the sense that you're like, it's, it's a lot of it is focused on training and, and, and helping wrestlers from that perspective. And I feel like as a fan, and maybe it's just because I'm so, such a wrestling nerd, like I'm going to want to listen to a podcast mm -hmm. that's intended to kind of teach wrestlers a little bit just because it'll help me as a fan understand the business more. Right. I've always felt that, you know, since obviously our, you know, we say the term sports entertainment or predetermined, whatever it may be, but I've always felt like if you pull the curtain back a little more that those people who are not, not fans like us will appreciate wrestling a thousand times over. They'll really get it. You know, the, the podcast I wanted, you know, I, I really did miss podcasting. And the whole premise of this show is, is kind of, you know, I, I was trying to think about a particular avenue of wrestling, but I'm kind of involved in a lot of stuff. So I didn't know where to start. You know, my first episode was really kind of a calling card to those hitting the independence mm -hmm. that left WWE because a lot of them don't know what to do. Even those that, that broke in and had some independent experience, they leave there now, now and they're kind of, well, what do I do now? And I've seen a lot kind of make the most of their opportunities opportunity and use this time period to elevate themselves, to go back and really cash in and make that impact. And then you've seen other people 
crash and burn. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to address in that first episode, just like, hey, I'm here for you guys, but more so this is what I kind of basic things I think you should do or shouldn't do because um, I've navigated these waters for for a, a long, long, long time. So, uh, yeah, but also getting to training stuff, you know, I, I, I'm just kind of the number one thing I miss the most is training guys in my school. So, you know, I can't wait till it opens back up. I'm just I'm just, you know, itching to hit the ground running even more and do something physical. Yeah. Did you have to take a couple of days after uh, would I mean, I don't even really know the difference. I don't know business enough, I guess. But do you was it a uh, were you released or furloughed or or you said earlier you don't know you could be back tomorrow. You could never be back. You could be back after quarantine. Who knows? Is that kind of just where you're at? Pretty much. I mean, I think the main reason why this is this producers are affected every single week. We have the live events, right? right? And you have two to three, depending on the show, if it's a raw brand show, you have two producers in charge and we are the go-to guys. We're in charge of everything. If you have a combined show, it's three to four producers, meaning because they're bigger shows, both talent from both brands. And for tours, there's always producer there. So now you know, it's not just the TVs that are, TVs are still running, they're, they're doing what they're doing, but we needed a huge crew produce or enough of us to run these live events. We don't know where live events are going. So I think if that opportunity presented itself again, I think it would have to happen when live events start opening up. Right. Because we're, you know, non-televised stuff, the producers run, run, run shop, we're in charge. So um, that's like kind of the, I think everything's just so, gosh, up in the air right now that we really don't know. But I think that all of us collectively that were released or furloughed will, will uh, you know, I think that everybody did a tremendous job. We had a great team, man. So I think we could all go back eventually if that's, you know, if something doesn't pop up before then. Yeah. I mean, I would have to imagine that it's kind of real. It's got to be reassuring on a certain level that clearly these are not performance-based cuts. They're situation-based cuts. And the fact is that they brought in a ton of new producers because the company grew and the world has made it. So the company has now shrunk in terms, not in terms of, you know, anything other than, how wide their footprint is and what they're doing. They're no longer going to, you know, 200 different arenas every year and have, and being all over the place. Now we've narrowed down to this is the spot that we're in right now. So even, even on the same day, like yeah. there's a time there could, there could be a raw live event happening in St. Louis. And we have our own crew there while SmackDown is touring. Right. Baton Rouge. Right. So, I, it was just really a numbers game. Right. And I think, you know, um, for myself, at least, you know, a lot of the, the newer, the newer producers, you know, myself and Lance and, you know, Davari and stuff like we, we, Hey, we're the newer guys. And you know, that that's just the way it is. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you have a favorite moment or match or thing that you did while you were in WWE that you were responsible for? Yeah. Uh, my, f- Two favorite matches that I I really, really enjoyed and had um, a lot of fun with and got along with the talent great. The first one was like Aleister Black and Buddy Murphy when they had that really, you know, killer, killer match. That was a, I I liked, I liked working with, I don't want to say new school guys, Mm -hmm. but I think that I'm a, a really good fit for, okay, if I can explain this and wrestling fans, I think we'll appreciate this, that, you know, you know, if you have a, it goes back to if you have a producer who 
whatever error they come from, chances are their taste and their their skill set will reflect the style that they're used to. You know, wrestling is sped up so greatly where if you're looking for if you're if you have two caliber athletes like an Alistair Black and a Buddy Murphy, and you're trying to figure out all the intense action that they do and relay that to cameramen and mentally know all their different there's not just like okay they do these sort of moves but the emotional parts of the match mixed in with the high-paced action i think you need that's where the new school mentality comes in so i yeah. really liked having things like that that was one of my favorites my second one was just from saudi arabia uh with naomi and bailey that would that felt wow yeah that was a really fun match to have just because you know coming off saudi arabia has if i can share some positive news about this they become more liberal yeah so if you watch like the first women's match with natalia and uh, lacy if you notice they're very reserved yep. it was a very basic kind of thing well since then you know they were totally cool with naomi dancing they were you know they were they were they embraced they had a real competitive you know, they're the action packed match. And, uh, uh, that was one of my favorites. And I think creatively, you know, coming up with, um, different things for that was, was my, one of my best matches there, I think. Yeah. I mean, I remember that match specifically. I had no idea it was your match, but I, I remember that match specifically because I felt like it was on the level. Maybe, you know, the first is always going to be the first, right. And that's such a huge step forward, but mm -hmm. I felt like this, that match, it was underrated what another step forward it was because huge exactly because they were being their characters and that wasn't happening i mean lacy ended up going turning babyface kind of based on right. that match because she wasn't a heel and it was such a moment and it was more about the moment than the competitors but i remember when that match was announced i was like i don't know if naomi is the greatest pick in the world not because she's not amazing but because I don't know what Naomi is if she's not dancing and doing that kind of way over the top celebratory character. And when she came out doing the character and when Bailey actually came out as a heel, I thought that mm -hmm. that was a big deal because I felt like, you know, that if women aren't going to be treated equally, you're certainly not going to allow a woman to come out there and be disrespectful to the audience. But when I saw right. when I saw Bailey come out and actually being a heel, I was like, this is it. This is for real now. This is this yeah, is really happening. It was a, it and those were all my concerns going into it. You know, I, I found out a couple, maybe a week or two before that I had that match and going into it, my, I had all these concerns because imagine being in producers are in charge of that match. We are, something goes right. You know, we get, I guess we get credit, but something goes wrong. It's, it, it, you know, it's, uh, it's on us. So with that being said, I'm like, well, what if I need to look into all these different things? Naomi comes out dancing and we have, and I've, if I've offended a whole country, I don't know <laughs> yeah. these things. So I had to kind of bring up all these, you know, different concerns. And what I, what I think was really cool is actually, um, you know, big Gaburk, mm -hmm. uh, he is responsible for the relationship between, or the, he was very knowledgeable of the customs of Saudi Arabia. And, and he was the one who informed me how liberated that they're becoming more liberal and saying that basically this is different from our first time and they can be who they are. And there's really wow. barely any limitations or things like that. So that was really, and again, after that, it just felt, felt really good. We all really, you know, it, it felt that was the most significant match that I, that I had this year. So it was fun. And just an amazing thing too, that you go from like, 
you know, oh, I'll be a coach at the Performance Center. You literally go from, yeah, I'm accepting this job that I never thought would be offered to me, and I'm worried that people won't even know who I am, to within, you know, a few months being one of the people on a plane to Saudi Arabia to con sure. be controlling those matches. I mean, that's such a that's such a great journey. I was thinking about, like, as I was thinking about the fact that we're going to talk today, I was like, and I, I know that you used to have, like, maybe you still do, you had the Ram logo on your on your yeah. tights for being the Rawway Ram. And I was like, Pat Buck, yeah. especially now, I feel like you are the positive version of the movie The Wrestler. Like this <laughs> this is what and it's amazing cuz you're young, but you're but yeah. this is what a lifetime in wrestling looks like when it actually works. You know what I mean? I, I appreciate that one because I'm a Randy the Ram Mark, but like, <laughs> you know, more so I, I think guys got to, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of guys out there that I went through such negative stuff for so long or such failed ventures and like, but I would still keep doing it and, you know, going to shows and being disappointed and, or having great matches, having bad matches, having all these different experiences. And I'm like, will this ever amount to anything? And, and I just kind of look back, you know, 10 years in, 11 years in, looking back on like, I, I guess I'm a failure. I don't know. But then when I really kind of just took a different direction and started the promoting and training and, you know, di a different avid wrestling, like I'm so glad I went through all those, those rejections and all those different times because there's, there's very few things in professional wrestling that, you know, that I don't have some sort of experience with like pulling myself out of, you know, and that, that's the thing too, where, um, like I, I'll miss the job. Mm -hmm. If it comes back, great. If it doesn't, I'm still going to be in wrestling the rest of my life, you know, and I'll be somewhere else where I'll be just, just be with myself. So I, I just think it's, there's always somewhere to, there's always somewhere to go, you know, and I guess I, I hate saying it as cornball as it sounds, you know, I'm, I'm kind of proof of it that you can, you can basically, you know, things can, ha if you, if you stick with it long enough, you know, and really have a true passion for what you do, you can figure out a way to, to some 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 way make a living in wrestling, and then eventually, you know, I don't know. It, it's 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 weird because I see a lot of guys. Um, I've seen people who are so dead set on being a wrestler, and then a referee opportunity opens up, and they can actually get that, and they turn it down because, you know, that's not what they want to be. Or a wrestler, or, you know, struggles, and someone goes, "Hey, you should be a manager. You fit the role of being a manager." And I don't want to be a manager, and they miss out an opportunity. I've kind of always been a say yes to everything kind of thing and see where it lands me. And right now I think, you know, it, it would just, luckily it kind of worked out. It, it's a little scary cause I don't know where everything's going to go, but I, I just, I've been in worse situations. You know what I mean? Like yeah. now I get, I, I get to leave there with a, a better resume and better connections and figure out like what content can I produce in this, in a post COVID world that, you know, I hope to run my own. Yes, I do run my own promotion, my own, my own company, if, if you will. But, you know, secret, I hope I'm the one running, you know, a bigger company, essentially in wrestling. So I just uh, and also not for nothing, just kind of, again, not to be cornball, but uh, I've managed to keep my reputation pretty solid over the years just because this business is hard enough as it is. So I always made sure that, you know, if I delivered on my word you know, try to look out for people the best your ability and just be real. Like if you don't like somebody or don't like what they're doing, you know, I, I'll be the first one to be like, Hey, I don't, I don't really like what you're doing and here's why. And just kind of having a reputation of being a straight shooter and 
most of the time doing the right thing. I mean, there's been plenty of times in promoting where, you know, oh, I wish I didn't make that decision or I made a mistake or I dealt with someone badly, but you can always, you know, you never want to kind of BS anyone. Like all the talent I dealt with in WWE, you know, I told them like it is, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to try to motivate them and, and figure out how to bring the best, bring the best performer out of them. And I think there's just so many people that are posers in wrestling and phony and just kind of want to tell you what you want to hear. And like, I tell guys like, I, a lot of people ask me, how do you play the politic game in wrestling? And I'm like, politic game? I'm like, just be genuine and be, they're like, well, I'm like, have you ever complimented somebody after their match? They're like, no, I don't want to do that because that's playing politics. I go, well, if you mean it, you're not <laughs> playing politics. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, or you could just be, be being guy. a good dude. Like, oh, I like that. Right. And I'm going to like, I like it. I like it. If, if somebody likes what I did, I really like it when they tell me. So I'll bet that right. other people feel that way too. If I were to tell them that I liked that. And it's so important. And, and I go, dude, if it's fake, if you didn't like what they did in the ring, don't go up to me like, Hey, great match brother. But like, there are so many times, especially in WWE where two people would crush it and I'm sitting in the locker room watching it, or I'm somewhere in the building. It's not even my match. And I go, I'm going to go there right now and tell them how much I enjoyed it or what I liked of it because it, they, they need to hear it. And mm-hmm. it's, it's genuine. So I'm like, I never played politics in my life. Just be genuine. Don't be a jerk. And kind of, you know, eventually develop a reputation where you're, you're, People want to have you around. So, yeah, those I are guess, life uh, lessons. Those aren't wrestling lessons. That's like, <laughs> re- but wrestling is life. Like, if you can manage it in wrestling, you can manage it in life. I truly I so. believe that. So, I tr- okay. Yeah, we'll see, right? We'll find Sometimes out. Sometimes I think maybe I should be doing something non spandex, but uh, I always get brought right back in. Yeah, no, and you should. And uh, everybody should follow the journey that Pat Buck is on because it's the most sensational story. Uh, I think the Pat Buck show is going to be the place to to follow that journey. You can find it wherever you got this podcast. I'm sure the Pat Buck show will pop up. I, I got it on Apple, but uh, I'm sure it'll be everywhere else. And Pat, man, it's always, uh, it's always great checking in with you. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for allowing me to promote. I'm on social media. It's the same as my mantra, which is Buck never stops. Love it. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash blue wire.
No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.